This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start... Thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. We learn a lot on shows with special guests. A lot of these broadcasts are kind of light and fluffy, right? They're easier to digest. And then sometimes we take a deeper dive. And it requires a little more concentration, just a little more focus. But it's also really, really rich with information. Today is one of those shows. And that's why I'm so excited to do it. Dr. John Wathy is someone I've had on the show. I guess it's been a couple of years, John. We were talking about your book, The Illusion of God's Presence. And you have a new project, a new book that just released called The Phantom God. And I knew we had to talk again. Welcome back, John Wathy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great great to be with you. What neuroscience reveals about the compulsion to believe, the subtitle of the book. Now, we I'm just going to jump in. We talked back in our previous conversation about this linking of our God belief to the animal brain, our primate brains. And I know it sort of all links together, but you are saying that human beings, the human primate is biologically wired to seek God? Um, That's maybe overstating it a bit or perhaps oversimplifying a bit. What I'm really saying is that the human brain is wired at birth to seek connection with a primordial savior, with another being that an infant's brain expects to be there. And, of course, that is the infant's mother in most cases. That's what evolution has shaped the brain of an infant to expect. And it's obvious why the human infant is completely helpless when born and is absolutely dependent on the mother for warmth and nurturance and nutrition, everything. 
So that's really what the brain is expecting. But I'm also arguing that the circuitry that primes a, a human infant to expect this other being, this primordial savior, that circuitry persists into adulthood in a dormant state. It normally doesn't really do much. But there's something about making a hardwired image in the brain that seems to, seems to make it permanent. That's, if the brain is going to do this, if there's something innate in the brain, it just tends to be there permanently, whether we need it in adulthood or not. And in adulthood, under conditions of, of great stress or crisis or helplessness, a situation that evokes the feelings of infancy, then the circuitry can be activated and an illusion of the existence of this primordial savior just comes into the brain from some unconscious place and can overwhelm a person in emotional crisis. And that's the thing, I argue, that creates this illusion of God's presence that so many religious people describe. Yeah, I mean, I was in conversation with a God believer a few months ago, and one of their questions to me, he said, why is it that in every culture all around the world, even if it's a different religion, there seems to be this yearning, this innate sort of looking up toward the heavens and expecting a God to exist? And, you know, this is, I mean, this is just one of those things I hear a lot from apologists. Why would so many people sort of lean into God belief innately if there was no God? Yes, exactly. And that's what I'm trying to provide a, a natural explanation for. And it's not just believers in the general public who, who feel this way. There are some truly eminent uh, and distinguished scientists who have had these feelings and who have taken that step into non-scientific thinking, into faith, into belief. One of the best examples, of course, is Francis Collins, who's written a book about it. And he says exactly what you just described. He, he says, and in the form of a rhetorical question, why do we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and minds unless it is meant to be filled? And that's his main argument or his main evidence, it seems to me anyway, as to why God exists. It's this feeling of God's presence to him feels like evidence of God's existence. But it's interesting with Dr. Collins who is a smart guy and a proponent of evolutionary science. And you see apologists, whether it's William Lane Craig and the Kalam Cosmological, etc., they seem to be making the case for this sort of faceless, deistic God. And then they take this big leap into the personal God with a proper name. I mean, Dr. Collins doesn't believe in some God with a small g. He believes in Yahweh, Jesus Christ. So how does that yes. happen? Yes. You know, it's it's funny how the... The, the brain, can, the, the human mind can do this. You, you get this feeling of this amorphous savior out there, and it's a very vague feeling. I've had it myself on occasion. There's nothing specific about it. It's not a visual hallucination. You don't see Jesus appearing before you. But if you've been raised in a culture where Jesus and Christianity is the dominant religion, you have friends around you who believe in Christianity and attest to what it's meant in their lives, it's just the easiest God to plug into that God-shaped vacuum. It's the one that's, that's at hand. So you lean into it because you're sort of um, predisposed by your environments. Like if there's a God, it would be this God. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. And another point I make in, in, the, in the new book, I have a whole chapter on 
what side of the brain, you know, the brain is symmetrical as a left and right side that are sort of mirror images of one another. The, one of the questions that people who care about the neuroscience of religion have asked is what side of the brain, what hemisphere is most involved in it? Which side of the brain do religious emotions come from or religious belief come from? And in the literature, there's really not a consistent answer. You can find evidence to argue in, in either direction. But what I found after trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together as best I could was that this feeling of God's presence that we've been talking about is mainly a right hemisphere thing. The right hemisphere is dominant in a newborn infant. The left hemisphere develops, or matures, I should say, matures later, uh, about at age two or so, one, or, one to two years old. And, and eventually the left hemisphere becomes the dominant hemisphere in most adults. But the left hemisphere is primed to do something very special. They, that's the language-dominant hemisphere. And when an infant is born and starts to interact with its parents, it gets bombarded with this very complex pattern of auditory information, which, of course, is speech coming from adults around the kid who's trying to speak to the kid. And during the first year of life, the left hemisphere is absorbing all of this and trying to find meaning in it. This, again, is something hardwired in the brain, this time in the left hemisphere, to try to find meaning in complex patterns of information. And it will project meaning into things, whether there's meaning there or not. And in the case of language, there, of course, is very important meaning, very detailed and specific meaning. So a brain, especially the left hemisphere, that's primed to find specific detailed meaning, detailed interpretation in some otherwise seemingly random pattern, that, I think, also makes it easy to fit a very complex theology, religion, rules, rituals, all that stuff, into this God-shaped hole, which is, or mother-shaped hole, which is what I think it really is, that's provided by the left hemisphere, which gives you the emotional drive, the longing to, for connection, the emotions of religion. I think that's mostly a right hemisphere thing. So you have these two sides of the brain kind of complementing one another and giving rise to what we call religion. This brings me to a quick digression. This is not in my prep. I just want to toss this out. I had read uh, recently that there really is no such thing as a left-brained and a right-brained person. Because, you know, what we hear is, well, the more creative person is, I don't know if it's left or right, and the more logical sort of cerebral, calculating, engineer-type person is this brain. Is there a left or right brain, or is that a myth? Well, there, there definitely is a differential specialization in the left and right hemispheres. There are profound differences between the left and right hemispheres. So that much of the story is true. And I think you could argue that some people are better at the things that the left hemisphere is dominant at. There are some people who are more linguistically articulate. There are some people who are better at math and logical reasoning and computer programming. Those tend to be mostly left hemisphere things. But almost nothing we do is exclusively left or right hemisphere. Even language is, uses both of the hemispheres. And in fact, in a child, if you destroy the left hemisphere through a stroke or traumatic injury or whatever, in a child, say, five years old or younger, the right hemisphere will go on to develop language normally. 
So we have this kind of plasticity. So I guess I would say that to, to say that there are left brain people and right brain people is just an oversimplification. Talking here with Dr. John Wathy. His new book is called The Phantom God, What Neuroscience Reveals About the Compulsion to Believe. You mentioned the God-shaped holder, then the mother-shaped hole. I've noticed that fundamental religions like Christianity, Islam, etc., really do infantilize their followers, right? We are all God's children. We are the helpless child, which sort of fuels our attraction or even dependence upon the divine parent. Exactly so. And you can find infantile imagery in religion almost anywhere you look. But Christianity teaches, for example, that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That literally says you must become an infant again. You must be like a child. And there are other passages in the Bible where Jesus says that, you know, let the children come unto me and you must be like a child yourself if you want to become a if you want to be saved, there's, there, there's many, many passages like that in the Bible. So, yeah, that's a, that's a real thing. Are some brains more inclined for God belief? I've heard some people say, I never bought this. I mean, people tried to program me and they dragged me to church and I was smart enough to figure out this was all a bunch of crap when I was five. How come somebody else, like Seth Andrews, didn't figure it out <laughs> until he was 35? And then, of course, yeah, I f yeah. feel like an idiot, you know. <laughs> I mean, are, are some brains more apt to lean into this? Are some people just smarter than others when it comes to this stuff? You know, it's probably all of the above. It may partly be a, an intelligence thing, but I don't think that's necessarily the main thing that distinguishes who sees through religion more easily than others. One interesting um, study that I read had to do with what's called mentalizing or theory of mind. This is the phrase psychologists use for the ability to sort of read the intentions and the feelings and the thoughts of other people from subtle nonverbal cues, things like facial expressions, body language, tone of voice. These are things that come naturally to most people. But there are people who have deficits at this, and people on the autism spectrum or with Asperger's syndrome are the most obvious examples. There are some people who just, there's something that's different about their brains. They, they have trouble understanding the subtle emotional cues that most of us take for granted. It turns out that they are very good at seeing through religion. They have a hard time understanding why this appeals to people. They, they are very hard to win over to religion exactly because of this, because they are not so well primed to make that connection, that deep emotional connection with other people. I ran across a social media page tragically named Religion is a Mental Illness, and I just about came out of my chair because I hate this claim. And I hear it all the time. No, in Christianity, religious people are mentally ill. You're the neuroscientist, Dr. Wathi. Religious belief is the result of a broken brain. How would you respond? Well, the first thing I have to say is the, the point you just raised is one of the main motivations for my writing this new book. Because, well, first of all, neuroscience is just a fascinating subject. It's, to me, it's one of the most fascinating things in all of science. And there are some great books out there that any intelligent person can read, great books about neuroscience, that any, any intelligent person can understand. But most of them either don't discuss religion at all, 
Or if they do, they only talk about it in the context of what you were just saying, damaged brains, schizophrenic brains, people who've had strokes or, or temporal lobe epilepsy. These are conditions that tend to affect religiousness in some way. And it's easy to come away from reading a book like that thinking, oh, well, then that means people who are religious have damaged brains. But we know that can't be true because the vast majority of people are still religious. And we have examples of people like Francis Collins we were just talking about, who does not have a damaged brain. He has a very well-functioning brain, highly functioning brain, and yet can easily be seduced by something that's emotionally appealing about religion. So I agree wholeheartedly. And yet, there are fascinating insights to be learned from the study of certain neurological conditions that do affect religiousness. And I, I do talk about a few of those in the book. Well, let's talk about the Phantom God book. What are you going for beyond the illusion of God's presence, your previous work? What's, I mean, I'm not asking you to read me the book because it is a thick little number here, but what's the message? I guess I should back up a little bit to answer that question and say something about where I'm coming from in my academic training. I did my PhD in the lab of Ted Bullock in, in San Diego in the Department of Neurosciences at UCSD, and he was widely regarded as one of the founding fathers of what's called neuroethology. And the ethology part of that phrase refers to a kind of behavioral study where the scientist is interested in behaviors in their natural context. Not so much lab rats pressing levers, but chicks on the beach hatching out and interacting with their parents. So there's a, a whole field of, of behavioral research of that kind. What neuroethology tries to do is it's based on the, on the idea that the brain is extremely complicated, very difficult to understand, and that the best way, maybe the only hope we have of understanding the brain is to find some place in a brain where we completely understand the problem it's trying to solve. And we can best do that by looking into the brains of animals that are highly specialized for a well-understood, well-characterized behavior that ethologists have already examined in great detail. So, for example, the development of singing in songbirds or the ability of a barn owl to catch prey in total darkness using only sound cues or the ability of weakly electric fish to communicate and navigate using electric fields in the water. All of these very highly specialized things are so specialized that if you look into the brain of those animals, you can find the part of the brain that's doing that and listen in on the neurons that are doing it and sort of piece together what kind of computation is being done to solve the problem. So that's, that's the basic idea behind neuro, neuroethology. And one of the things that they tend, that ethologists tend to emphasize, are behaviors that have to do with infancy or, you know, newly hatched chicks, things, animals that are just coming into the world that are primed to do something critical for their survival, like pecking at their parents' bill to solicit food. When I was a graduate student, I could not help but see religion through this lens. This is how I started to think about religion in a scientific way. And I felt that there was something about the infantile brain of a human that primes us to make this emotional connection, and this was somehow persisting into adulthood. So 
my two books are my neuroethological project to try to understand religion. And the first book was mostly the ethology part, the behavioral part. The new book is mostly the neuro part. Now I'm sort of opening the hood and looking in at the machinery to try to figure out what is it about the way the brain is connected that, that can help us understand the way religious behavior comes about. A scientific reason for this. I don't know. You said um, mother-shaped hole, and I was thinking, is that why we say things like Mother Nature? Like if we see the natural world that is larger than us, you think that fits into that as well? You know, Mother Nature wants this or does that? Yeah, yeah, we we have this. We we definitely have a tendency, first of all, to anthropomorphize, to to project intelligence onto any process that's complicated and hard to understand, and we tend to to see specific kinds of personalities. Like a maternal personality is is easy to project on something that we have affection for or that we feel nurtures us and protects us or supplies us with our needs, and and nature does that. We find food in nature. And we find water in nature and the, the earth, our environment, our biosphere does sustain us. It's easy to think of Mother Earth as a mother. Next up, I want to talk about AI, computer consciousness, with John Wathy. Short break, right back. Are you a fan of true stories, interesting history, celebrity trivia, true crime, weird news? Then you're going to love my podcast, True Stories with Seth Andrews. And I'm your host, Seth Andrews, releasing five-minute podcast vignettes three times a week. Search True Stories with Seth Andrews on Spreaker and all major podcast apps or visit the website, truestoriespodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Talking here with my special guest, Dr. John Wathy, author of the new book, The Phantom God, What Neuroscience Reveals About the Compulsion to Believe. Let me just jump over here. I mean, this is just you and me talking over coffee. Okay. But if we see the brain as a computer, I mean, would you call the brain a computer? It's an organic computer. Would you call it that? Okay. I would call it that, yes. So as we watch this rise of technology and everybody's talking about AI and computers that begin to, for lack of a better word, learn from, I don't know, even their mistakes or the behaviors of their environment, do you ever see like an artificial computer brain or is that just the stuff of science fiction? I think yes. I think that day is coming. I don't know if I will live to see it. You're, you're a little more likely to live to see it than I am, but <laughs> I think it is, it is definitely coming. 
when I was a postdoc many years ago, we used, I was in a computational neuroscience lab, and, and part of what they did in that lab was to work on artificial neural networks and what we call today artificial intelligence. Back then, the state of the art was not nearly as good as it is now, but we would speculate about how long is it going to take before we are able to actually come up with a, an artificial human-like brain that's bas basically indistinguishable from a human brain in most of its abilities. My advisor at the time speculated. I think he came up with a. I think he came up with the year 2019, just based on some arithmetic having to do with the rate at which computers were increasing in their memory and you know a number of transistors on a chip, things like that. It was a crude calculation, and he admitted that it was. And obviously, we don't yet have a human brain in artificial form in 2019, but. By around 2019, we were starting to have very sophisticated artificial neural networks. And one of them that's involved in a, a project that's close to my heart is um, something called AlphaFold. It's developed by a subsidiary of Google. That's a, an artificial neural network that has been used to solve the protein folding problem. It's a problem in molecular biology that molecular biologists and computational biologists have been struggling with for decades, at least 50 years. For that long, we have known that the sequence of amino acids on a protein chain is the only thing that determines what three-dimensional structure the molecule folds into. And that three-dimensional structure turns it into a machine with moving parts that does something important for a living organism. Uh, muscle fibers, enzymes, structural proteins like your hair, every, everything that makes living things work is pretty much done by protein. So this was a deep mystery that could not be solved. We pounded away at it for decades. And an artificial neural network has now solved that problem. So if they can do that, I'm impressed. Now, beyond uh, the moral, ethical challenges, I mean, here we get into a whole other field, you know. Well, first of all, our robot overlords, you know, <laughs> you know that's a whole, other, a whole other show. But whenever I speak about the brain as computer to my religious associates, uh, they just blanch because the one element, the main element missing in that equation for them is the soul, right? I guess that's mind-body or mind-soul dualism. Would that be yes. accurate? Yes. How do you address the whole soul question, right? There is a soul, a consciousness that exists beyond the mind. I mean, the brain is not consciousness, or is it? I would say it is. I would say it absolutely is. I devote an entire chapter in my first book to this question. Is there any is, is consciousness a thing that exists separately of the mind or can exist separately of the brain? Can that happen? You can find anecdotal stories where people claim that it has happened. People supposedly near death, their heart has stopped in the operating room, and they claim to be hovering above their, themselves and seeing the surgeons working on them. There have been attempts to verify those kinds of experiences. They, people in emergency rooms have put visual targets, complex patterns or images or sequences of numbers on a piece of cardboard facing the ceiling so that if there's a spirit up there hovering around looking down, they could see the number and then later report the number, and that would be impressive evidence. That has never produced a positive result. And I'm not surprised that it hasn't because... The neurological and neurobiological evidence for the unity of mind and brain is just overwhelming. 
we could talk about this for hours, but the idea that the brain and the, and the mind are one, they're two different aspects of the same thing, that makes testable predictions. And there's a long list of testable predictions. One of them, just to give you an example, is that if you damage part of the brain, you're going to damage part of the mind. And we can see that again and again and again over 200 years of, of scientific journals and the neurology literature. You damage the visual cortex, you lose some vision. You damage the auditory cortex, you lose some aspect of hearing. You damage higher order association areas, you may lose the ability to speak. And we can even do these kinds of experiments in now in a non-invasive temporary way. You can induce temporary brain damage in a person, which you know goes away. So it's just a temporary little experiment. And the way we do this is with a magnetic coil it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. You put a magnetic coil, which induces a very highly localized, very strong oscillating magnetic field inside the brain. And that induces electrical currents in some weird pattern that scrambles the normal computation that's being done there. And if you do that over Broca's area in the frontal lobe, you can't talk. For as long as the circuit is on, you cannot speak. And it's because your speech cortex is being scrambled. Turn off the switch and now you can speak again. That to me, that kind of thing is just dramatic evidence that the brain and the mind are one. I was talking to uh, neuroscientist Dr. Julian Mussolino. This has been a long time ago, but he made an observation I hadn't thought of before. Um, he said the soul really is a scientific question because if there is a soul that's driving our attitudes and behaviors, that would be measurable, wouldn't it? I mean, if there's a soul that's actually sort of fueling what we do, what we say, why we do and say it, that should be something that would be measurable with, uh, I don't know what you would use, wouldn't be an MRI, right? But I mean, could you see the soul affecting how we act and who we are? You know, um, there, you just reminded me of, of an experiment that was done long ago. I don't know, 19th, not before the 19th century, maybe 18th century, I can't remember. But a, there was a famous experiment done where someone was trying to measure the departure of a soul from a person. So they weighed the body before the person died <laughs> and after the person died. How much does the soul weigh? I mean, that's... That, <laughs> that, that was the idea that there was some kind of material thing that left the body at death and they were trying to determine how much this weighs. That, of course, doesn't pan out. Yeah. But seriously, your, your question is something people have tried to do in a, in a sense with MRI. There are lots of studies where people have done MRI of people having some kind of religious experience, either praying or reciting Bible verses, speaking in tongues. There's a literature on this. And you can indeed find places in the brain that are especially active during these experiences or activities or whatever. And I talk about some of them in my book. I, I do talk about that literature in the third part of the book. And I just try to interpret them in a completely naturalistic way, which I think is completely, is, is entirely possible. There's, there's no need to invoke anything supernatural going on in there. And yet, there are people who have written books about neuroscience and the brain who have tried to do exactly that. A, a journalist named Barbara Haggerty wrote a book back in 2009 called Fingerprints of God. And the title of her book is exactly what I just described. She she attributes or she describes patterns of neural activity during religious experience in the brain 
in an fMRI machine as fingerprints of God, with no justification in my humble opinion. Well, uh, thanks for indulging my digressions, Dr. Wathi. Okay, uh, final slug for the book. I mean, if you were to brochure it for the audience, and again, it's linked in the description box, but The Phantom God, give me the Reader's Digest byline, would you? Well, the title of the book comes from the phenomenon of the phantom limb. This is an illusion experienced by someone who's had an amputation, and yet they still feel the presence of their missing hands, let's say. This is because the brain has these very powerful expectations. So my, I guess the, the, the byline of the book is that there exist in the brain expectations of a loving savior, of another person, of another being that can save us in times of crisis. Where that comes from, why we have it, how that generates religious feelings and belief, that's what the book is about. We did some good science today. I mean... Actually, you did the science. I just sat back and went, wow. (laughs) Dr. John Wathi, neuroscientist, author of the new book, The Phantom God, What Neuroscience Reveals About the Compulsion to Believe. All success with this. A necessary work, and I think a great revelation as to why the physical brain sometimes seeks out the supernatural. John, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.